0: You'll find it on coffee mugs, t-shirts, bumper stickers, earrings, lunch boxes, underwear, baby bibs, and most popularly, wristbands. It's four letters and a question mark, and one of the most well-known acronyms in the United States. WWJD, which stands for What Would Jesus Do? You may have seen the classic WWJD bracelet popularized in the 1990s. It's normally a thin black canvas material uh, stitched with white letters on it. Um, And the question, WWJD actually has roots going back further than the 1990s. Try 100 years back before that. In 1896, a minister from Kansas, Charles Sheldon, wrote a novel called In His Steps, colon, What would Jesus do? And the story of this novel is about how a town is revolutionized when Christians pledge themselves earnestly and honestly for an entire year not to do anything or make any decision without asking the question, what would Jesus do? A youth leader at Calvary Reformed Church in Holland, Michigan, read Sheldon's book, wanted to inspire the youth group at our church, and back then, friendship bracelets were all the rage. And so she got a local company to print 300 WWJD bracelets. The bracelets caught on locally and later nationally. And since then, tens of millions of WWJD bracelets have been sold. Maybe you have one in the drawer at your home. Maybe, Becca, are you wearing one right now? All right, if you, could, if you want to see one, Becca has one on right now. Um, and so plenty of people have kind of picked apart the logic behind what would Jesus do. And just to say up front, I don't think we should discourage people from being thoughtfully Christian in their decisions and in their lives. But I don't know if uh, what would Jesus do quite goes far enough. See, the, the problem with the question what would Jesus do is that it immediately invites uncertainty. It's all about guessing. It's all about hypotheticals. So rather than guessing and reflecting on the uncertain question, what would Jesus do? We should reflect on the certain question, what has Jesus done? The Gospel of Mark as a whole, and this passage of it in particular, shows us that Jesus intends us to ask this question. And when we focus first on what what would Jesus do, we subtly imply that what Jesus has done is not enough. So focusing on what Jesus has done reminds us that his work is relevant for all of our lives. So I invite you to take a copy of the Bible of God's word. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. If you're looking at the Bibles provided in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find it on page 846, Mark 10, verses 32 to 52, where we will read of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for us. Mark 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. He has done exactly what he said he would do. Die on the cross to pay for and set us free from our sin. And three days later, rise again from the dead. This is the central purpose for why Jesus, the eternal son of God, came to earth. And so, just like other passages, in this one, we hear Jesus calling us to follow him. And follow him wherever he leads. So I think we sum up the main point of this passage or the main point of the sermon in one statement is that following Jesus starts with the cross, which means following him will look like self-giving service that will involve costly sacrifice. Following Jesus starts with the cross, which means following him will look like self-giving service that will involve costly sacrifice. We're going to go through this passage paragraph by paragraph with our points building on one another, and as we do that, it's my prayer that God will renew our awe of Christ, clarify how we think about what Jesus has done and who he is, and strengthen us to follow Christ all the more joyfully. Let's dive in. First, in verses 32 to 34, we see that Jesus leads. Jesus leads. Mark often begins new sections and scenes by starting with where they happen. So where Jesus and his disciples are in the region of what was known as Palestine. We left them in the region of Judea, on the east side of the Jordan River. And now Jesus and his disciples are on the road to Jerusalem. He says that they are going up to Jerusalem because, if you know, Jerusalem was on a mountain, Mount Zion. So God's people would go up to Jerusalem every year, at least multiple times a year. Most notably, most importantly, for the festival of Passover. There is even an, an entire section of the Psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. These are songs that the Israelites would sing as they headed up to Jerusalem. They're mainly songs of praise and joy. But Jesus' tune on the way, on his journey to Jerusalem, is a lot more ominous than the tune of the Psalms of Ascent. He makes clear that Jerusalem is the place that he will die. Now, we're going to get to the details of Jesus' prediction of his death in a second. But what I want you to notice first is a short phrase that comes in verse 32, where it says, Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, we're going to read of Jesus teaching his disciples. But in all that, the, that he taught his disciples, he led his disciples in what he taught. In other words, Jesus doesn't tell us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. He does not lead us anywhere where he has not gone first. This is a great comfort that the book of Hebrews actually draws on. The author of the book of Hebrews says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet Without sin. This has been a comfort to me when I feel like no one can relate to what I'm going through. You know who can relate to me? Jesus. That Jesus doesn't lead us anywhere he hasn't gone to first is a comfort to me when I talk to people who are going through situations that I have no idea what it's like. You know, one of God's gifts to his people is the local church, and within the local church, people who have gone through the same experiences and trials that we're going through. That's a gift. But we have to say, each one of us, none of us can relate to every person in every situation. None of us can. But you know who can? Jesus. Jesus leads. Jesus leads on the road to Jerusalem. And as he is walking ahead of the group, we read of how the people following him were both amazed and afraid. So we've seen a steady growth in opposition to Jesus So in the Gospel of Mark so far, we've seen how the predecessor to Jesus, John the Baptist, was murdered and beheaded. We've even seen plots against him that were a lot louder than just mere whispers. We've actually heard accusations of Jesus saying that he's possessed with a demon. And yet, as we read here, here is Jesus, head held high, eyes straight forward to the place where he will die. That is an amazing determination to follow the will of the Father. Leading the way to where he will die. But we also read that his disciples were afraid. And we get a hint as to why they might be afraid in verse 33. Jesus says, notice the pronoun there. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem. We are. Those who followed Jesus sensed that their fate was closely tied to his, which is likely what made them afraid. So remember that back in verse 28 we saw last week, verse 28, chapter 10, the disciples talked a big game about all that they had given up to follow Jesus. But now that they see following Jesus could actually cost them their lives, they're not quite as loud as they were before I don't know about you, but the Lord has a way to remind me pretty frequently how frail I actually am. We often think our faith is stronger than it really is. It's actually not. And the disciples were found out here to the same thing that their faith was not as strong as they thought. But it's just a reminder that Jesus is kinder than we think, too, and more patient. And so here, Jesus leads, the disciples follow. He doesn't toss the disciples aside when they are afraid. And he leads the way to Jerusalem. He tells his disciples what will happen to him when he gets to this city. This is now the third time Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection. And this time, Jesus includes more details than he ever has before. So for the first time, Jesus tells his disciples the location of where he will die and rise again in Jerusalem. For the first time, he also tells them more specifically the parties that will be involved in his death. He says the chief priests and the scribes This would be a Jewish group. And then he says they will hand them over to the Gentiles, both Jews and Gentiles involved in Jesus' death. This, kind of, this refutes, by the way, the claim that the Gospels are, have an anti-Semitic bent to them. This refutes that claim. Both Jews and Gentiles were involved in Jesus' death. Jesus tells them more about how he would come to die. He says that people will, quote, condemn him. He uses that word, condemn. It's a legal word, which means that Jesus is saying that his death will be a decision of a court. It will not be an outcome of some rogue act of violence by some mercenary. No, this will be an official decision of a majority in a court. Jesus also is more specific here in this prediction of his death in the details of his humiliating treatment. You see, he will be mocked. He will be spat upon. He will be flogged. This was custom in the Roman Empire. It's a Roman custom to humiliate criminals who were publicly executed. So Jesus leads the way to this fate, walks straight toward it, head held high, knowing exactly what would happen. He doesn't explain here why he had to come and die, but he is saying that he must do this and that this will happen. So we might ask, this being the third time Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection, why does he keep predicting this? Is it just because the disciples don't get it yet? I mean, that's part of it. But I think Mark includes three of Jesus' predictions of his death as a reminder to his readers that Jesus' death was no accident. Jesus' death was the plan. It was the plan all along. It's what he came to do. So looking at all the predictions of Jesus' death, notice that Jesus never says, like any of the biblical prophets of the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, this will happen. No, Jesus just starts off on his own, with certainty saying, this will happen. Because Jesus is more than just a prophet. He is the Son of God. Knowing exactly full well what would happen when he got to Jerusalem. So this is the starting point. Jesus leads. Now when we say Jesus leads, we imply that there are people who follow. Just a very simple question at the beginning point of our time. Do you follow Jesus? Jesus. Do you follow Jesus? The answer is either yes or no. There's no third way. Helpful resource you might find in the lobby later um, is this little tract uh, called Two Ways to Live. It's blue, Find on the track rack in the lobby. Two ways to live, either yes or no. Read this, give it to a friend. Do you follow Jesus? You may know the famous words from William Ernest Henley, kind of sums up our natural mentality. He wrote in his poem, Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Friends, our natural inclination in the world tells us to follow our heart, to be true to ourselves. What does Jesus say? Jesus says to deny ourselves and to follow him. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't follow Jesus, I want to commend you for being here. It's a great place to be. We welcome you. We love you. And I could give you statistical information about how Jesus has been the central figure of history for the last 2,000 years. I could give you stats about how many millions upon millions of people have decided to follow Jesus. But just in our time together this morning, would you consider who it is, seriously consider who it is, who is calling us to follow him? Consider who he is. Consider where he walked ahead of us. So in the rest of our time, would you have your ears open to Jesus' words about the situation we find ourselves in on our own and where we will end up as we lead ourselves? Listen to more words about who it is that we follow and what he has done for us. So this is the starting point. Jesus leads If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are no longer your own captain, but he is your captain, are you afraid like his disciples? Are you afraid? What keeps you up at night? What makes you timid? What makes you quiet about your faith in Christ? If we took a quiz trying to figure out what character from the Wizard of Oz we are, More than Dorothy, more than the Tin Man, more than the Scarecrow. I'd wager that most of us would be the Cowardly Lion. (laughs) Knowing who it is that we follow, Jesus, the one who died and rose again, the one who no opposition could defeat him, knowing that's who we follow then those who follow Jesus without courage are like lions without courage. Even someone like the Apostle Paul knew that courage is not natural to us. He had to ask his readers to to pray for his boldness. So friends, let's focus on the one we do follow and pray for a Christ-fueled courage and bravery, knowing that in him, Romans 8 says, that we are more than conquerors. So we need courage in following Jesus. As we continue in this passage, we see not only that Jesus leads, but also that Jesus leads to unexpected places. Jesus leads to unexpected places. Now the first time Jesus told his disciples that he would die and rise again, Peter took him aside and rebuked the Son of God to his face. The second time Jesus told his disciples that he would die and rise again, the disciples were busy arguing among themselves about who among them is the greatest. This time Jesus tells his disciples that he will die and rise again, and we find James and John, two of his disciples, asking for places of prominence in the kingdom. I guess we could say at least the disciples are consistent in being off base. Look again at verses 35 to 37. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, James and John did get one part right in their words to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah who will one day reign in glory in his kingdom. But it's like that the, James and John heard all that Jesus said about his prediction and they only listened to the part where they thought, wow, we can get in on this and benefit from this. It's like they only heard the words, and I will rise again, and then they must have thought, all right, that's when the kingdom is going to start. Maybe then we can start to get in on this action." Have you ever noticed how sometimes it's helpful to see someone do something wrong, to do a task or uh, some kind of job in the wrong way in order to understand the right way how to do it? Uh, If you've been to a big gym or where, like, you exercise, you know how this works. So at a big gym, you may have experienced there are rows upon rows of different machines. You know, there are cardio machines, there are weight machines, there are ones with heart rate monitors, there are ones with levers and pulleys and free weights and all of that. Now, if you are a savvy gym goer, you don't walk up willy-nilly to a machine that you've never used before that looks strange because, no, you, you instead, you wait until other people, you watch and wait for that machine until other people mess up, and then you go try out that machine because you don't want to be the guy or the girl who stands next to a machine trying to figure out for 10 minutes how to just adjust the seat. So when the disciples get so much wrong when they approached Christ, like other wrong actions in the Bible, we're told that they're recorded for our instruction. So notice for James and John, it's the bold, presumptuous, selfish way that they approached Jesus. Just the first words to it. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. If your kids ever come up to you and say, we have an idea about something we want to do, but you have to promise to say yes before we tell you. (laughs) That request is not going to end well. Now the disciples here approach Jesus and demand that he bends to their will. Their first concern is not for Christ's glory. It's for their own glory. This is expressly the opposite of how the one who they claimed to follow acted. You'll know among Jesus' most famous prayers was his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death. We don't read him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, I want you to do what I ask of you. We read Jesus praying, not my will, but yours be done. Around the same time, Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer. What he prayed Glorify your son. Why? So that the son may glorify you. James and John masqueraded their love for themselves with Jesus-y type language. For them, Jesus wasn't so much the one they followed as the one who would make all of their dreams come true. They treated Jesus more like a butler instead of a king. Friends, if Jesus leads then those who follow are those who want what he wants. They have the humility and the trust to submit to Jesus' ways, not to attempt to make him bend to their will. If Jesus leads, then those who follow him are more concerned first, not with their glory, but with his. But as James and John, and even the rest of the disciples, we read that they were mad at James and John, likely because they wanted to ask Jesus the same thing. Or as the disciples followed Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, they expected a crown without a cross. They expected glory without suffering. They expected honor without humility. As Jesus responds to James and John, he shows that he leads his followers to places they don't expect. I think we can see at least two places or experiences where Jesus leads us to that aren't expected. From verses 37 to 45, we see there Jesus leads to sacrifice and Jesus leads to service. Jesus leads to sacrifice and Jesus leads to service. He tells James and John that he will lead them to sacrifice by saying in verse 39, the cup that I will drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. We talked about this a little bit earlier on in the service, but it's helpful to know how the Bible uses both of these images to understand what Jesus is saying here. So the image of the cup is used in a lot of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, You know, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And the cup refers to God's wrath against sin. So Isaiah 51, for example, speaks of the cup of God's wrath. Baptism, in this case, this image, refers to being flooded with something. So the great flood in the days of Noah, we read earlier in Genesis 6, was a sign of God's wrath against sin. In other places, like Psalm 69, we see that the image of a flood, to be overwhelmed and submerged in a flood, is a sign of God's judgment. But within baptism, there's also likely a hint of hope in the use of that word because it's to be immersed and then to emerge again. So for Jesus, he would die and then he would rise again. So the point, though, is Jesus leads to unexpected places. He leads to sacrifice. Now, he told James and John that they would drink the cup he drank. They would be baptized, baptized with the baptism he is baptized with. Kind of a mouthful there. But what does he mean? How did they share Jesus' same cup and baptism? Now, unlike Jesus, we cannot bear the cup of God's wrath against sin. In fact, that's exactly why Jesus came, because he knew we couldn't do that. He came to take the cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. So, what does Jesus mean when he tells James and John that they'll share in the same cup, in the same baptism? Well, we remember that each time Jesus predicts his death, his death and resurrection, he's made it clear to his followers that their lives will be patterned after his life. So you remember his famous call, deny yourself, take up your cross, not your cushion, your cross, and follow me. So within his original call to us to follow him and include it in our original first step in following him, should be the understanding that following Jesus will involve sacrifice on our part. Just keep in mind, in particular for James and John, James, we read in Acts, was executed for his faith, and John was exiled for his. And we can make sense a little bit more of Jesus leading us to sacrifice when we see that he also leads us to the unexpected experience of service. He leads us to sacrifice, and he leads us to service. So both last week and this week, we see Jesus' work as an electrician. Jesus goes to work rewiring. So last week, Jesus rewired the rich young ruler's concept of what it means to be good. This week, Jesus rewires the disciples' concept of what it means to be great. The disciples expected greatness to be how many people you can get to serve you, but Jesus says greatness is actually measured by how many people you serve. True greatness involves, according to Jesus, not being a master over others, but by being a servant and even a slave to others, the lowest positions in that society. True greatness is not how high we can climb up the ladder True greatness is how far down the ladder we are willing to climb for the sake of others. When we truly have this others-focused kind of service, a focus on others, serving them, climbing down the ladder, that will involve sacrifice. Ask anyone who has jumped into the messy relationships of church life over a long period of time. If you truly serve and love others in a deep, meaningful, and involved way, it will involve sacrifice as well. Many of you remember uh, that Pastor Dave, previous senior pastor here, uh, he had a re-entry tree-cutting ministry. He did the hard work of serving others in a deep and meaningful way by giving work to men who could find it almost nowhere else. Convicted felons. Now, there were a lot of quirks. There were a lot of interesting stories. Um, but in so many instances, Pastor Dave displayed the deep serving love of his Lord. And that meant he frequently felt the cost and sacrifice of loving service. So, fellow followers of Jesus, are you in these unexpected places where Jesus leads? It's going to look slightly different for each one of us, but are you boldly and lovingly living out your faith in Jesus in sacrifice and in service? Jesus leads to these unexpected places, but he reminds the disciples and us, again in verse 45, probably the most important verse of this passage probably the entire book of Mark. That as he leads us to these unexpected places, he walks ahead of us. So we don't have to ask what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done? Look at verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus calls us to follow him in sacrifice and service Because that is what marks his life, seen most fully in the cross. But Jesus' words in this verse, in verse 45, reminds us that we don't follow him just because his death is an example to us, though it is. We follow Jesus in this way because of what his death actually accomplished for us. Jesus says he gave his life as a ransom for many. Now, when you hear that word, ransom, you might think of money being paid to kidnappers. You know, kind of like the movie Taken with Liam Neeson. But the word ransom in Jesus' day referred actually to money you would pay to purchase someone out of slavery. Purchasing someone out of slavery. So Jesus says his death was the payment to set us free from slavery. Well, you ask the question, Well, what, are, what were we enslaved to? Well, the Bible says that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Actually, Jesus says that in John 8:34, that we're not just guilty, we're actually in bondage, heading for a crash, like passengers on a hijacked airplane. The Bible also says that we were enslaved to the law, that we are guilty, that we have broken God's law and are under its judgment. So to set us free from slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to the law, Jesus voluntarily gave his life as a ransom, as a payment to set us free from that slavery. So he experienced all that we should have experienced from our sin and from our breaking of the law. Experienced the hell that we were headed to. Experienced the curse of the law that we were under. This is substitution, friends. This is the heartbeat of the gospel. Theologian John Stott captures this so well. He says the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man puts himself where God deserves to be. God puts himself where man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the one who calls us to follow. So I'll ask another simple question Are you free? Are you free? Are you free from the guilt and bondage of sin? Are you free from the curse that comes with breaking God's law? And friend, who else could bring you this freedom? Who else has paid for this? Who else could pay for this? Besides Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. Do you follow Jesus today? Get freedom today and be reconciled to the God who made you. Do you see how starting here, starting at this point with Jesus' work on the cross to give his life as a ransom for many, you see how starting at that point changes how we go about our service and our sacrifice. It changes our approach to that. Because in every other religious system, including the ancient Roman religion, we begin relating to God or to gods with our service to God or to God. It's actually how all of Roman society was structured. You would start and you earned your status by serving superiors. And your superiors in turn would reward you by giving you people who would serve you. So all of Roman society was driven by this desire for power. And underneath it all was a constant state of uncertainty about what your superiors thought about you. Jesus, on the other hand came not to be served by his inferiors, but to serve them. To die for them and set them free. So that they no longer have to be unsure about their place with God. And they no longer have to attain power to have status. They already have been given it. And so now they are freed to follow Jesus and how he lived. We follow Jesus in service and in sacrifice because we have first been set free by him in his death and resurrection. In other words, friends, we serve and sacrifice as those who have first received the ultimate saving service and sacrifice. So as Jesus walks ahead of the group of his followers toward Jerusalem, we noticed in the first uh, point that Jesus leads. When his disciples again were off base and how they responded to Jesus' prediction of his death, we saw that Jesus leads to unexpected places. And again, these are places that Jesus first walked ahead of us. It's been implied so far, but we see it clear in the last paragraph, in verses 46 to 52, that Jesus leads to unexpected places and we follow. Jesus leads to unexpected places and we follow. Like many of my sermons, the last point is by far the shortest point. So far, our intention has been focused mainly on the one we follow. Rightly so. But just as we saw it was helpful to get a bad example of what it looks like to follow Jesus, it's always going to be helpful to get a good example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So the last scene in Mark chapter 10 comes of what would have been the last city uh, before Jerusalem. Uh, The last city in the Jordan River Valley, this is Jericho. This is not, it wasn't quite exactly in the same spot it was when you're familiar with it in the book of Joshua. But it's still, nonetheless, in Jericho, a familiar scene for Jesus. See, a blind man approaches him. It's unique, we're told the blind man's name, Bartimaeus. And I think this scene gives us at least three lessons when it comes to what it looks like to follow Jesus. First, following Jesus looks like believing the truth about who he is. Following Jesus looks like believing the truth about who he is. Look at verse 47. See there, Bartimaeus calls Jesus son of David. He declared that he believed Jesus was the promised Messiah, the promised and long-awaited descendant of Israel's greatest king. But in verse forty-one uh, 51, Bartimaeus showed that he believed Jesus as the Messiah could bring wholeness and healing. He asks Jesus for his sight. Second lesson about following Jesus. You see, if following Jesus looks like approaching Jesus in the right way. Approaching Jesus in the right way. I wonder if you could spot the difference between James and John's first words to Jesus and Bartimaeus's first words to Jesus. James and John go up to Jesus and they tell Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus, and what does he say? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Isn't it ironic that the ones who could see were blind to their need for mercy? And the one who couldn't see saw full well his inadequacy and his need for mercy. So we approach Jesus knowing our need and knowing his adequacy to meet our need as sinners, out of his mercy. James and John, they asked for fame. Bartimaeus asked simply to be restored. Even with this humble request and calling out for mercy, the crowds attempt to silence Bartimaeus. But we also see that in Bartimaeus' approach to Jesus, that he is persistent. He knows that he has hope in Jesus And Bartimaeus is unashamed of his persistent faith. He's too focused on Christ to be deterred by the mocking of other people. Well, third, we see here that following Jesus looks like being changed by Jesus. It looks like being changed by Jesus. Notice in a very tender few words, we're told in verse 49 that Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped to care for a man who no one else cared about. And when Jesus told Bartimaeus in verse 52 that his faith had made him well, not only did Bartimaeus receive his sight, but something else happened also. Do you see that word for made well? It's also translated as healed. It's the same word used for saved. So Bartimaeus was made well, not just physically. Bartimaeus was made well spiritually. So for us, how do we know that Jesus has touched us with his power? It's not first by physical healing, but with a changed life. Look at how verse 52 closes. It says, Bartimaeus recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This would be on the way to Jerusalem where Jesus would die. So what has Jesus done? Nothing short of giving himself in service and sacrifice by dying for our sins, setting us free and freeing us to live in the way that he lived, in service and sacrifice. The church father, Polycarp, is believed to have been a student of the apostle John. Yes, in this same knucklehead John from this passage, Polycarp was burned at the stake and pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. His famous last words went like this. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. As Jesus leads, we follow. Let's pray. Lord, where you lead, by your strength, we will follow. And we thank you, God, that you went ahead of us in our salvation. We could not lead in this. We could not bear the cup of God's wrath on the cross, but you did. We could not set ourselves free. We were enslaved, but you did. And God, having been freed, would we live like Jesus more and more in service and in sacrifice? God, help us cling to the truth of this gospel And let it be what fuels each moment of each of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.